Bless God. Let's open up the Colossians. We're going to read verses 15 to 20. Today will be an introduction to uh, these verses. Also, another minor introduction into the book itself as we go through these verses of Scripture. Let's start in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, as we look into this mystery of Christ, Father God, over the next several weeks, and we just try to dissect just how incredible our Savior is, Father God, who rescued us, transferred us, and qualified us, Father God. Uh, Just continue to speak to us, Father God, that the praise, the hymn of Christ would live in our hearts, Father God. Lord, breathe upon the text today in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be speaking about the supremacy of Christ as we've been doing in the book of Colossians really elevates Christ to a magnificent place. And uh, as Christians, we can get very familiar with the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the work of Christ. And we need to be careful of being just too familiar with Christ. You know, this. I'm going to spend more time on these verses next week. But... What we just read is actually a hymn. I don't know if you know that. It's a song. It's a poetic song. Uh, we read it in scripture, and it is, but it's written as a poem. And when it comes to certain doctrines, you need to sing them. There's something about singing the high praises of Christ that just floods the heart. That last song flooded my heart. Of his great love. You know, there's times we preach and there's times we teach and there's times we meditate and we think about it and contemplate. But there's something about singing the high praises of who Christ is. It's almost like at those moments you realize that's why God created music. Was to put it to Christology. It's not about entertainment. It's about filling the heart with the reality of who this God-man is and how awesome he is and what he has done for us. And we're going to speak more about that next week. Uh, But when it comes to this beautiful portrait of the Lordship of Christ over creation and redemption, and that's what Paul is talking about here, uh, we need to start with the dark canvas, unfortunately, that it's painted on which is the deceiving philosophy that was crept into this church and was teaching another message. Paul's writing in defense of the truth. And there are times that, as Christians, we have to take time out to defend the truth. We have to defend it personally, we have to defend it from the pulpit. As Christians, we always need to be on our guard against that. And uh, you've got to remember, when this was written, the church was only 30 years old. 
Christ has been resurrected and ascended 30 years later. These people are being saved and they just don't recognize just how incredible Christ is. They're coming, their young minds are coming to realize that this Jesus of Nazareth, this man, is actually the creator God. For me and you, 2,000 years later, this has been instilled in us as children. Growing up in a, a, a Christian home and Christian culture, uh, I never doubted that. I, I didn't give it much thought, but I was told that. And the truth of the matter is, I believed it. In my young, childlike way, I believed it. But when I started really contemplating on who Christ is and what he has done for me, it really has a humbling effect. And that's what it's meant to do. It has a humbling effect and a strengthening effect. And it makes us courageous for Christ. It makes us strong against uh, all opposition. And there is a lot of opposition in the world towards Christ. I want to start off with a quote by a man named William Barclay. Barclay says this, It is one of the facts of the human mind that a man thinks only as much as he has to. It's not until a man finds his faith opposed and attacked that he really begins to think out all its implications. How true this is for all of us. How true it was for the Colossians, how true it is for me and you today. Opposition always produces something. Always. It will produce either a bold, courageous stance or a sheepish retreat. Opposition to our faith is going to produce something. It's going to get us moving in the direction. It's going to start a chain reaction. It's going to start a, a chain of events within our hearts on how we're going to deal with opposition. And I've seen both. I, I've seen myself sometimes being sheepish and retreating. But as we grow in Christ, and you start to understand that he who died for us is God. What happens when start to take place a transformation? And Paul talks about being established in the faith, to be bold in the faith. We're all called to defend the faith. Because I tell you right now, Satan comes against all of us. If he can't steal your soul, he wants to steal your holiness. He wants to steal your witness. He wants you just to be sheepishly going to retreat. Yeah, go to heaven, but don't ever make a mark for Christ. He goes on to say this, that Christianity can always produce new and deeper riches to meet every new situation and attack. I want to read that again. That Christianity can always produce new riches to meet all new situations and attacks. Every answer we have to every philosophy, every religion, every cult that opposes Jesus is found in Scripture. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. I went to a wake the other day and I saw someone, I've witnessed to him in the past, and they give me like a warm, get out of here, basically. You know what I mean? It's not cold, it's warm. But it really what they're saying is get, get out of here, you know? And I've gone this, through this several times with this gentleman, and, and I saw him, and he was with another gentleman, and I didn't know the person that had passed away was his best friend. And, and they were there in the hallway, and, uh, and I just said, if you have anything better than Jesus, let me know. They were broken. What, what do we do? I can't believe this happened. You know, we're talking about someone close to, you know, 60 years old. And, and I just said, that's why. I, and I looked at him, I said, you know my faith. I said, what do we have but Jesus? It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. He's a person. 
And that's what Paul is doing here. He's elevating the person of Christ against all false philosophies, all false religions, all false ways that sneak into the church and try to steal our faith. Everything we need to know is met in the person of Jesus Christ. I I often tell people who try to disagree, if you have something better, let me know. Give me anything. Don't try to talk about Jesus, you know, he happened to be God, Adam and Eve. They go, all, all of a sudden they're all over the place. Give me something better. When you wake up at 2.30 in the morning, and all you can sense is how mortal you are, how vulnerable of a human being you are, and there's no one there but your thoughts, give me something better than Jesus Christ. Religion just won't do it. Philosophy just won't do it. Just trying to say there's no afterlife won't calm the soul. Trying to talk ourselves out of anything. Is just not the answer. I want to speak about some of the characteristics of this false teaching and, uh, and this, this shaman-like figure that came into the church that caused Paul to write this letter. And there's a reason to it. I don't want to just go into how awesome Christ is. We have to understand what Paul was writing against. And if we understand that, then we can really see the magnificence of Christ and why Paul was doing that and, and, our, and our position, how it strengthens our faith. Because it shows us a lot of characteristics of this person. It could be a couple people, but most scholars believe that just a person was disrupting this whole church. And it crept into, this person crept into this group of believers. I want to read something out of 2.18 and 19. And uh, we're going to start drawing some characteristics. Let no one disqualify you, he's telling the church. What he's saying, don't let anybody tell you you're not complete in Christ. Insisting on asceticism, that's harsh treatment of the body, and the worship of angels, going on in the detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, his sensuous mind, a person, not a group of people. And not holding fast to the head. Now, I want to stop there in verse 19. Not holding fast to the head. What we have here is someone has come in unassumingly with a very weak professing, professing of Jesus Christ. They, they say they believe, but they're not holding on to the head. They came in under the guise that I too believe. Often, as First uh, John says, they were with us, but... They're not of us. They hung around a while. But eventually they left. And Jude says that they, they crept in unnoticed. They didn't notice. They, they creep in. People creep into our lives. And I'll get into that when it comes to application. But what happens? We have someone in this church that says they're holding on to the, on to the head. They say they believed in Jesus Christ. But unassumingly, they were speaking to people contrary To what Epaphras has taught this church. He's undermining the church. This is a personality that says yes and no at the same time. They can say amen to the Apostles' Creed. They wouldn't think about not saying amen to the Apostles' Creed. But they really don't, what? They don't believe it. It doesn't shape their life. It doesn't shape their faith. They don't line up their life with it. But yet they're sitting in churches. This man was sitting in the church, unassumingly. They portrayed themselves as 
genuine believers, but as time goes on, something starts to shake, take form. And two, verse two, uh, chapter 2, 4 says this about them. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or persuasive arguments. This is a very persuasive personality. I don't want you to miss this. One person with a weak confession of Christ has a strong personality, persuasive arguments against what is being taught. There's a very strong personality to take a stance against a group of people and their faith. But yet, this is what this person is doing. This is someone who doesn't take correction, has to have the last word. Willing to openly disagree to all the apostles said. Now listen to this, this sounds familiar. About Christ. Disagree about his complete work. They'll disagree about, disagree about the scriptures. But yet they say they were Christians. We see that in the, in the gay and lesbian community today. They believe in everything, uh, but they don't believe in this, they don't believe that, they don't believe this. So, and not just one portion today, but we see that within many people. I mean, we have family members that uh, say, well, you know, they'll say yes to the creed, but when you talk about being born again, what do they say? Well, you don't need to be born again. You need to repent, you don't need to repent. I was speaking to someone the other day, he turned around and says, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. I was so tired. I gotta be. I'm gonna be honest with you. I looked at him. I shook his hand. I said, "Praise God." I was like, "What am I gonna do?" Praise God. Everybody's going to heaven. Now, you know, I just I didn't have it to fight this man one more time. I fought him. Ten times already, twenty times. I said, if that's what you want, one day you'll find out. You'll find out the hard way. But this is what's out there. People are willing to say yes and no at the same time. This is what's going on in this church. Someone has crept in. Paul is writing to teach his church exactly who it is that rescued them. Exactly who it is that transferred them into the kingdom of life. Exactly who it is that qualified them for eternal life. And he's willing to fight tooth and nail, toe to toe, to make sure that no one comes in and steals their joy or steals our joy. Because when we sing about how amazing his love is, God wants us to truly know no matter how wicked our hearts are and they are he truly loves us and that is worth fighting for and it has to be fought for because Satan doesn't like that message he goes on to teach this this is someone that also carries their own gospel with them because they're refuting with these plausible arguments What they're saying is, we know the right way. Listen to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a different gospel this man has crept in. He's saying yes to Jesus, but he's saying something else. I was worshiping here. We used to do Monday nights for many years here. A bunch of the guys here would come. And 
We worship, worship. I was worshiping with a guy, his hands up for two years. And one day he's in the back and he's telling somebody about a different view of the Trinity. I didn't know what this gentleman was. He was what we know as a modalist or, or Jesus only. And what they believe is this. He was saying the songs, said amen to the sermons, shook my hand, had dinner with me. I had no idea that he's in the back. He said, well, no, you don't understand. The Trinity really is this. In the Old Testament was the Father. And then when Jesus came, the Father ceased to exist. And then when Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven, the Spirit came. But the Jesus, he, he doesn't exist now. Now it's only the Spirit. And that's what... Uh, oneness Pentecostals would believe, a modalist would believe, that there's three different modes of Jesus Christ. Here I am, I'm befriending this gentleman. I'm singing with him, I'm praising with him, amen with him, taking the sacraments with him, and he's in the back after two years, and he's telling people, I, I just spoke on the Trinity, he goes, no, you know, that's not true. See, they creep in. And you don't know, that, that starts to disrupt the people's faith. You know, this person, this personality was willing to say yes and amen to me face to face and go in the back and undermine everything I said. That's a strong personality. That's someone who doesn't care. That's what's going on in this church. This person was sitting in this church 2,000 years ago saying all sorts of amen, but at the end of it, he was undermining all the apostles' teaching on the faith. And it's still there. It's still here today. And he wasn't just undermining it. He, Paul's calling it a philosophy. And in the New Testament, philosophy means something that originates in the mind of a sinful human being. It's not based on any biblical revelation. There is Christian philosophy. There is a Christian way of life. There's a Christian way to approach education. There's a Christian way to approach government. There's a Christian way to approach Marriage is a Christian way to approach raising the family. There's a Christian approach to how we work. There is a Christian philosophy towards life. But it's based on the Bible. I'm not going to come here and give you my opinion of what I think should be the right way. That's what this gentleman is doing. He's coming with a philosophy, Paul calls it. It originates in his own sinful mind or someone else's sinful mind. It's not biblical at all. He says it's deceiving it deceives by being empty. And what Paul is saying, this philosophy has no real substance concerning God. It has no real substance concerning Christ. It has no real substance concerning salvation. There's a lot of words. Religious words, religious activities, we're going to go into that. But at the end of the day, there is no Jesus attached to it. There's no shed blood attached to it. That's why Paul is specific about Jesus shedding his blood. When it comes to this philosophy, it's just man's mind. And as we shared before, if you go to anybody, everybody's a theologian. Everybody's a Christian theologian. You go to anybody and talk about Jesus, and they'll give you an opinion. They don't know the scripture, never read the Bible, never go to church. But they'll say, oh, just be good. How many times have you heard that one? Just be a good person. I just, I, I narrow this one down. Is Jesus God? That's where I go right away. Is Jesus God? Let's start there. If you say no, then I can end the conversation. 
If you're telling me he's God, then let's sit down, have a cup of coffee. We'll meet here every Monday, 10 o'clock, and we will speak about the Jesus of the Bible. When people talk about God, here is one of the key elements you've got to listen for. If the sermon is not pointing to Christ, if it's not built on the person and work of Christ, and it doesn't end with the grace of Jesus Christ to get us to obey him, it's not Christ. It could be a well-meaning teacher, it could be a well-meaning Christian. But at the end of the day, that's not a Christian message. A Christian message, so it's not called philosophy, because you go to a lot of Christian churches today, and I'm going to tell you something right now. You'll be Christian, they'll believe you need to be born again, but you're going to hear philosophy. You're going to hear empty opinions. You're going to hear uh, a commentary on cultural things. You'll hear many things, but it's not based in the person and the work of Christ. And if it's not based in the person and the work of Christ, what's ever being said is going to depend on our strength to what? To do it. So when Paul is defending something over here, when he defends the faith, he's not defending just, you know, who who, who Jesus is. He's defending the joy, the contentment, the free and full salvation that we enjoy on a daily basis when we know that we have sinned, when we know that we have blown it, when we know we need God in our life. He is defending the truth of what Christ has done. And there are many times we need to defend that truth. And as I speak to this church, this church knows that. John speaks about it. I speak about it. We speak about it quite often. You know why? Because if you're going through the text, every, just about every New Testament epistle addresses this problem. You cannot read the New Testament without coming across this situation. And how it still applies to our life today. When I get into application, you'll see how it still applies to our life today. And one of its most deadly characteristics is what he calls human tradition. Human tradition. Human tradition here is probably referring to an already known religious activity that's been handed down through the generations in some kind of local community. Sort of like, well, we've always done it that way. Ancestral religion is one of the most powerful tools of Satan. Did you know that? Ancestral religion. This was the leverage this person had. He was coming in, he was talking about certain things that, well, this this new message is too simple. Our family has always done it this way. That's ancestral religion. And then now the person's like, oh my goodness, I'm going against mommy, I'm going against daddy, I'm going against grandma who's doing the knitting, she knit me the sweater. And you get all these visions of ancestral religion, you know, and and your eyes are off of Christ and because the whole family and the whole community, and we never did it that way. That's leverage. False teachers do that. They try to scare people. That's what this person's using. Ancestral religion. He goes on to say, according to the elemental spirits of the world, you can either have two meanings or maybe a little bit of both. It seems the best to refer to evil spirits who inspire false teaching, because Paul teaches this in Timothy, that there are deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, and it could be. But most, 
are most likely these are evil spirits that needed to be appeased by some kind of religious ritual to ward off uh, the evil spirits. I know the Italians like to call it, I think it's the Malachi. The Malachi, right? You have to get the little red uh, horn on there. But if they read the creed, would they believe in it? Do they say it? Of course they do. But at the same time, they're filled with ancestral superstitions. They're family. You can't break out of it. I've seen people struggle, and you're trying to teach them the faith, and, and, and they're going through all this kind of crazy stuff. And that's why Paul's saying he's the image of the invisible God. This is the one who's rescued you. God rescued you. You don't need to worry about the malachi. You don't need to worry about superstitions anymore. Give it up. Don't get rid of the rabbit's foot. Get rid of it. Don't need good luck charms. All these we'll speak about when I get into chapter 2. The point is, I want to see that why Paul is writing this incredible description and portrait of Christ was to capture the hearts and the minds of these Christians that were being under attack by these superstitious rituals and these philosophies and these traditions of men that were going backwards and Paul was pulling them forward by not telling them don't believe that. He's saying, look who died for you. God died for you. Verse 16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment. This is what Paul's saying. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. This person was arrogant. There's an arrogance here. A self-righteous arrogant. Willing to stand in judgment of another person's religious activity or non-activity. I remember when we first got saved, we went through this with uh, some family members. Uh, all of a sudden, we didn't. We got rid of the crosses. You get rid of everything, and all it is is about Jesus in the Bible. That's all it is. And see, that doesn't look like family ancestral religion. You know, you're not doing it the right way now. You're standing in judgment. Where is? You're eating meat on Friday. You're not never supposed to eat meat on Friday. And now you're all of a sudden you're eating Frankfurters. And you don't care and you're enjoying them saying they're good. They're twice as good on Friday than they've ever been. But the family doesn't want to hear that. Because you're breaking the rule. And if you break the rule, you're not going to appease the elemental spirits. And guess what? The Malachi's going to get you. Something bad's going to happen. Now we laugh. It's comical. But we know people that are living under this kind of stuff. 2,000 years later, people are still living under this madness. Because they don't know the head of the church. They don't know the creator, God, who redeemed us from our sins. This person was standing in judgment over their lack of religious activity. What this person was really doing was a personal assessment of their hearts. Because that's all God's concerned about. 
Wasn't it nice when we first got saved and realized it's just about the heart? That's all God's concerned about. He's concerned about changing us from the inside out. If we ever got away from the simple gospel and started following rules and regulations, I've seen people do this, I'm telling you now, you'll lose your joy, you'll lose your hope, you'll lose your peace, and I'll tell you right now, you'll live twice or worse of a sinner than you ever did because there is no power against the indulgences of the flesh. Religion doesn't work. If you and I want to live a holy life, we have to hold this tight on to Christ because without him we can do nothing. He goes on to say, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his, again, a person's sensuous mind. Here's the kicker. They're putting up their personal religious practices of how good they've done in their religion and their personal religious experiences and inflates their ego. I had a gentleman here, known him for years, speaking to him about the Lord, generally saved, good man, like him a lot, like his wife, but he's into this supernatural kick. Everything is about miracles, signs, and wonders. He says, Brian, you you can't tell me any different. I said, but the the gentleman you're talking about, listen to his doctrine. We sat down, we analyzed some of his doctrine. It's obviously erroneous. But he goes, you don't know. I was watching him on TV one day, and the power of God came through the television set and healed me. That's his religious experience. What do you, you can't argue against that. It's over. The scriptures mean nothing now. How do you argue against someone's personal experience? They'll put the experience over the truth, over scriptures, fight your tooth and nail, First of all, I don't even know if he's healed, but I can tell you now, his life is falling apart. No fellowship. Belongs to no church. Him and his wife are lonely, dying for fellowship. They've burned every bridge from about six different local churches. They can't even go into a church anymore. This is because they experience. That experience speaks louder than the word of God. And once that happens, we're disqualified. Matter of fact, we're not even looked down as spiritual because we don't believe in those experiences. People get inflated egos. They have an experience and they, they lose the true humility that Christ gives by breaking us of our pride. And all of a sudden people can start elevating themselves and standing in judgment of other people's spiritual lives. It's against this background that Paul is writing and fighting for these people's faith. It draws, Paul, it draws out of Paul some of the strongest and highest teachings of Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. It's something that Paul wants that not just to live in their hearts, but to live in our hearts and minds as, as a pastor. If... I know Christians can get this into their DNA exactly how awesome and incredible the Lord Jesus Christ is and who it is that died on the cross. It'll make our job so much easier. So much easier. And he does it by beginning in the classic biblical way of proclaiming the object of our worship. 
I'm not concerned about a religious experience. I'm not concerned about human traditions. I'm not concerned about philosophies. Who is the object of your faith? Or what is the object of your faith? Because if it is not Christ and Him crucified, the Son of God, then it's worthless. Pure and simple. I don't care about your experiences. I don't care how many times you thought you were healed. I don't care if you were dead and now you're alive. If it's not based on Christ, the object of faith, I don't want to hear a word you're saying because Paul says it's empty deceit. So it was important to just look at some of this background before I get into what Paul is exactly saying about Christ as Lord of Redemption and Lord of Creation next week. I wanted to just bring this to the light, and as the, the weeks go on and months go on, we'll go through this again and again, because it applies more to our life in a practical way than sometimes we can see. And, and if we go to application now, all young believers, all young, I can remember having strong personalities come against my faith. Has anybody ever had out of nowhere unassumingly, family, friends, co-worker, out of nowhere, now that you're a Christian, and they're opposing you. Out of nowhere. Strong personalities, persuasive arguments, uh, they say they believe in Jesus, but then that's it. After that, they don't believe in anything the Bible says about Jesus Christ. I know husbands. I know they love the Lord. I know they've been born again. But their wife said, if you ever walk into that church, I'll leave you. Two friends of mine. They came to me, what do I do? Uh, one person, the wife wrote me uh, a scathing email. And uh, it, was kinda, it shook me up kind of much. And of course, we responded in a gracious way. But I told these p- people, I said, listen, you've got to follow your conscience now. I can't step in between you and your marriage. I said, if you're truly born again, you'll follow Christ. Neither one of them go to church anymore. I have no idea about their faith. I see them every once in a while when they're around me. They're very awkward. Can't even talk about the Lord. These are people I led to Christ. These are people I baptized. These aren't strangers. These are people I know. You never know when opposition is going to come. And I believe just about every true young believer we'll have to go through that strong personality that disagrees strongly with our faith, but at the same time they're saying they believe the same thing. I can't figure it out, but they do. Then there's tradition, ancestral religion. It's still amongst us today. Don't disrupt the apple cart. Don't get in the way of the way we've always done it. Ancestral religion is one of the, as I said, one of the key weapons of Satan. Don't change anything. Keep doing what you're doing the same way. Don't change a thing. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't turn the family upside down. Just keep doing what you've always been doing and basically shut up. And I've shared this before with my mother. I never saw my mother go to church once. When we became Christians, she goes, Why are you leaving the religion? Religion, never been in a church. And now you're concerned about my faith all of a sudden. Now I love Jesus, and I'm talking to you about the Bible, I'm talking about this, and oh, my mother. But she came to know the Lord before she died. That, that, that me and my wife truly believe that, that she really did come to know the Lord 
And uh, because we just, you, you stay with it. You just stay with it and they see the genuineness of our faith. And also when it comes to opposition, as Barclay said, you know, the furnace of opposition really is where the creed that we read every week really becomes personal conviction. Opposition does that. I taught karate for a long time. I know many friends that teach karate. I know many people that got black belts. They can't punch their way out of a paper bag. Now I say, because it's not a conviction, it's, it's aerobics. And you go through it and you go through it, but if they ever had to truly defend themselves in a genuine life or, th- uh, life or death situation, I don't think they can do it. Because their karate was never more than just going, punching the air. There was never opposition. They never, they never challenged it. They never sparred. They never fought. They never sparred and fought and go into uh, competitions. And when I taught, I made sure everybody did that. We did that all the time because otherwise you have a lot of punching and kicking, but you really don't know what to do with it. And until our faith is opposed, until we go through personal oppositions, I truly believe we have a creed, but we don't have deep convictions that are going to shape our life. And God will use opposition to come in there. And once you're just sitting there, you're going, oh my goodness. I got to really believe now. Is it the truth? How many people enjoy the creed? Honestly. I love that creed. I love, if we were in the middle of Afghanistan and all of a sudden you were walking down the block and you heard saying the creed, your heart would go crazy. And here in America, it gets drowned out by all the unbelief. But if you're in a real dark culture, and you're around a group of people committed to the Apostles' Creed, it'll fill your heart. Do you know why we have an Apostles' Creed? Any guesses? Opposition. Throughout the three, first three centuries of the church, Heretics would rise up and say that Jesus wasn't God. The minds got together, formed a creed. Fifty years later was something else. The great minds got together, went to the scriptures, formulated the creed. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed. People died for that. People were willing to put their faith against the whole philosophies and traditions of men over 17, 1800 years ago, to give us this creed. When I say that creed, it means everything to my heart. For many of us today, we're not going to struggle with what I said today. Many of us here understand that when it comes to God and Jesus being the God, man, no one's going to talk us out of that. I know, that, I know everybody in this room. I don't think anybody's struggling with that. But you know what Christians still struggle? Thinking they've got to do something to please God. That Christ hasn't already perfectly pleased the Father for you in your salvation. That Christ has perfectly, perfectly paid the price for our salvation. And there is nothing that we can do but joyfully and gratefully thank God for it. Continue to learn how awesome this God is and respond to it naturally from a new heart. That is it. The only answer to guilt is the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. And Father God, so many things we've went over today, we've gone over many times. We, I know we have, Father God. As a pastor, I know I have touched on this subject many, many, many 
times. But the truth of the matter is, Father God, Satan is constantly attacking the truth, Father God. And we constantly need to be aware of it, Lord. I ask you to bless this sermon, Father God. Put it into our hearts, God, and prepare us to see just how glorious Christ really is, Father God. And never, ever get tired, or really, God, never get familiar with who exactly it is we worship. And who exactly it is shed his blood on that cross in Jesus' name.